today on Pence Exchange, ethnic integration in Nigeria. Welcome to Pence Exchange, the forum where we discuss everything related to the historical experience of markets and their philosophical foundations. Today, we will be joined by Ojebola Okunogbe. She's an economist in the Human Development Team at the World Bank Development Research Group. She received her bachelor's degree in economics from Dartmouth College and her PhD in public policy from Harvard University. Her research interests are in public finance. She studies how state capacity affects government's ability to raise revenue through taxes as well to spend it through social protection programs. Welcome, Ojebola. Thank you, Fernando. Thank you so much for having me on this program. Nigeria is Africa's largest state by population size and by nominal gross domestic product. It is a multi-ethnic state where more than 250 minorities coexist. Political conflict due to geographic, religious, and cultural differences has been a common theme since independence from Britain in 1960. How can a large and diverse state like Nigeria be fully integrated into one common nation? Today, Dr. Okunokme will talk to us about her recent research on the matter. So, Oyebola, I want to start by asking about the framing of your paper. I would say most literature in the political economy focuses on the causes and consequences of ethnic fractionalization. How important is shifting the narrative towards trying to understand how to unify a country? Thanks, Fernando. No, absolutely. Um, it's really important to think not just deterministically about how you know historical features or um, the way that things have shaped out can shape Africa's future. Instead, to move towards thinking about what public policy tools are available to government that seek to chart a new trajectory and trying to understand what types of approaches work, which ones don't, and under which conditions different approaches might work. So I think that this change in the narrative and this change in approach is an extremely important um, area of work that many people now are moving on to so that we don't only just stay stuck in the past, that these historical um, forces have been at play, but instead to try to think, okay, what exactly can be done now to improve the outcomes for people? Before we dwell on the topic itself, I want to understand the context a bit better. And I know this is outside of your specific research, but I still wonder if you could briefly summarize a bit about Nigeria's history. How did the Nigerian state come to be in the very first place? and exactly how ethnically diverse is Nigeria? Okay, so um, I think we have to go back to the 1800s, really, in thinking about the Berlin Conference and really how different colonial um, nations, how they divvied up different parts of the continent. And obviously people lived in these places for centuries before, but with the advent of colonialism, and then that was when these national borders were drawn. And what happened, not just in Nigeria, but in many countries, is that ethnic groups and that had very little similarities ended up being bonded together in the same state, whereas there were other places where the same ethnicity had a 
line that was drawn through them. So, for instance, you have Yorubas in Nigeria, and you also have Yorubas in Benin Republic, which is in the next country, who are all the same ethnicity. But because these national boundaries were drawn, they are they are now in two separate countries. And so that's the case with Nigeria too, that it's now, as you mentioned, home to hundreds of ethnic groups that are now in this country. And actually, the second major event was in 1914, which was when the Northern and Southern Protectorates were combined into one country, because prior to that, England um, governed them separately. And so in 1914 is when the name Nigeria was actually formed as one country. And then move on to 1960 was when Nigeria gained independence from Great Britain and became its own independent state. So today it is indeed the case that there are so many different um, ethnic groups that have come together in one country and there is a, an ongoing process of not just being one in name, but actually being a being truly one nation. And right after the 1960s, there was a civil war that was fought along ethnic lines. And so that was kind of the first big fracture in this newly independent state where um, the southeastern part of Nigeria, the people there who lived in other parts of the country had experienced a lot of um, violence. And so they decided that they were going to just form their own new country. And that's set of a civil war that lasted three years and so it's it's had its history of that and I think it's a constant work of work in progress of trying to see how having so many groups together can peacefully coexist in one in the same country. And the capital Lagos is dominated by the Yoruba? Lagos used to be the capital so at independence Lagos was the capital and now the capital is Abuja. So around 1990, the capital got moved. Lagos is on the coast, and it got moved to the center of the country, which is in Abuja. But Lagos is still, I think, maybe the most well-known uh, part of Nigeria. It's still the commercial capital. It's like New York, in some sense, in the U.S. That's still the heart of commerce in the country. And that is in the Yoruba area. So the three main groups are Hausa, or the three largest, I should say, Hausa, and as part of Hausa, there's Fulani, they're often grouped together, although they're um, different groups. So there's a Hausa, Fulani, and then there's um, Ibo, which is what I was mentioning earlier in the southeastern part. And then in the southwestern part, you have the Yorubas. And there's many, many more around. And some states have one ethnicity that is the dominant one. For instance, in most Yoruba states, the Yorubas are by far like 90% of the population. Whereas there are other states that could have like 50 in the same in the same states. So those are the more ethnically diverse states. Your argument, the argument of the paper hinges on exploiting a quasi-random experiment in Nigeria, whereby university graduates are required to spend one year away from their local regions. Could you talk to us more about this program, its history and its details? Of course. Uh, so this is the National Youth Service Corps. It's called the NYSC for short in Nigeria. And it was founded in 1973 in the aftermath of the Civil War that I just referred to. And the goal really was to try to reunite, so to reconcile the country and also to rebuild after the war. And what the government decided to do was that every college graduate was required to spend one year in national service. And so this meant that people 
who are from a particular state, the government will not send you to that specific state that you're from. Instead, they could send you to any other state in the country and they um, randomly assign which states they send you to because they want it to be that the cohort of people that are serving together in any of the states is representative of the national diversity. And so, one, they get the corporate, the core members, the participants, to mix with other um, graduates from around the country. And then two, they also use that opportunity to expose them to a different state of the country. And so what happens is that some people are assigned to a state that's not their state, but could be very similar to their state. So I am from New York, but I'm sent to serve in Connecticut. Or they could be assigned to serve in a state that's very different from their states on the other different part of the country. So I'm from New York, but I'm sent to California, for example. And so there is that um, dimension of the program where they're actively seeking to expose people to other parts. The other thing about the program is that given that it focuses on college graduates, these people are really seen as human capital that could help in very practical ways. So what do they do once they get to their service locations? They start with a camp. It's called an orientation camp. So you spend three weeks in like a barracks, something that looks like a barracks. And you have those uniforms that you have to wear the whole time that you're there. You have to learn about the states that you've been posted to. You're um, oriented to the goals of the program. So it's three weeks spent doing a lot of phys fun physical activities like um, drills. And it's almost like a paramilitary uh, camp in a, in, a, in a way. And so once you finish in that camp, um, then you're sent to what they call a place of primary assignment. And that place of primary assignment is your job for the rest of the year. And many people, over half of them, are sent to schools to serve as teachers. In fact, there are some states that really rely on the influx of core members every year. But people could also be sent to other jobs. So you could work in a bank, you could work in a hospital, you could work in a, in a hotel. Private employers are allowed to write to the National Service Corps to request service members. And so the government pays these service members, regardless of whether they're working in a government institution or a private institution. The government pays them something that's similar to the, to the minimum wage, but which minimum wage in the formal sector, which in the broad distribution of the country, it's still quite... Uh, a decent amount. And then many times the employer would also subsidize and add, have a top up. So they could either give them housing or they could also give them um, a salary or they could give them other, um, other amenities to make their stay as comfortable as possible. So that's the primary assignment. Um, in addition to that, the core members also have community service activities that they do. So it could be, oh, one day a week I leave my primary assignment and I'm involved in things like beautification of the community or I'm teaching students IT skills or I'm teaching them um, on sex education or leadership or other types of activities that people might do. So those are the different components of the program. You start in this camp to kind of learn about the ideals, you know, to build camaraderie with your other core members and then you go and do the job 
and then you also have a community service element. So those are the main elements of the of the program. Um, it's a very large program. As you mentioned in your introduction, Nigeria is the largest country by population in Africa. And so if all the college graduates have to do this program, it's about three to 400,000 people a year that do this service. And so that means that literally every part of the country is touched by these graduates. There's no village as remote as possible. They have a state presence in them through these um, core members. And so it's a very influential program in Nigeria. It's also quite expensive. It costs somewhere around 400 million dollars every year. And this is about a quarter of the health budget for the whole country that the government spends on this cohorts each year. And so the government invests a lot in it. It's very contentious. You know, there are always people that are saying, oh, this program has outlived its youthfulness let it be scrapped and the other people that claim oh it's a very useful program and every almost every um uh time in the senate people are bringing up bills to say oh we need to scrap this and others are saying no so it's it's been around for almost 50 years now anyway but it's it seems to be still going strong so has there been any, any interruptions in the program or has it been operating continuously since the 70s it's been going continuously um since the 70s Things, some things have changed about it. Um, so, for instance, there was a time when, because of insecurity in different parts of the country, they changed where they would post people to. Like, they didn't post people to places, certain parts of the country. Or there might be other things, like, um, I think at some point they were trying to restrict which sectors they were going to allow people to work, to focus on things like health and education. But by and large, in some shape or form, the program has been has been going on its inception. So could you elaborate more about your main argument here? Is the hypothesis that those people that go to spend a year away from their hometowns get treated and become more open to other regions' cultures throughout their lifetime? Or is it that the regions themselves get treated by receiving a lot of people from different parts of the country and hence become more open? Yeah, so it's the former. It's Really, the study is very much focusing on the core members themselves and what happens to them. And the design is having, is studying, all the people that I'm studying are core members. The difference is that some people end up, like the illustration I gave earlier, they're sent to a state that's quite similar to their own state culturally. And so they're still leaving, but they're not going too far away. And so they're going to a state in the same ethnic region and others are sent to a state in different ethnic region. And in my study, I am working with one large university in the southwestern part of the country, in the Yoruba state. And so I have a cohort of college graduates who are all Yoruba. And so among them, I'm comparing those that served in a Yoruba state to those that got um, assigned to a non-Yoruba state. So that's really the difference um, that I'm going to be um, identifying um, the differences in outcomes from. It's really, and another way to think about it is that since all of these people are living and working alongside core members from all over the country, they're already exposed to a diverse set of colleagues. So there's that's one layer of the diversity that happens in the program. But then 
The second layer is the one that I'm actually going to be looking at. It's that compared to the people who have friends and colleagues that are from all over the country, what happens when you are now sent to live and to spend a whole year in this other part of the country? Um, so it's in some sense the intensive margin the, that of the exposure that I'm looking at. And, and, that's, and I think as we'll get to very soon, that really helps to explain some of the results that I'm finding. Okay, a couple of questions about the specifics of your results. First, how exactly do you measure integration? What is the dependent variable here? Yeah, so I, as you might imagine, there are many aspects to integration. And so I look at three main buckets. So the first one is migration. A key part of integration is the freedom of people to move across the country and to feel that they can make their home in any part of the country. And so um, in Nigeria, it's legal for people to live in any part of the country, but most people remain in their own ethnic region. So for example, among the Yoruba, just looking at um, nationally representative surveys, 95% of Yorubas are living in a Yoruba state. And so people tend to not live all over. There are some other ethnic groups where they're a lot more mobile. So the Igbo, for instance, they're more likely to live all over the country and some other groups. But for this particular group, they tend to remain within their own ethnicity. So the first outcome is how likely are they to be living in different parts of the country. And related to that, I consider two mechanisms. One could be that if you're posted somewhere else, then you're just more knowledgeable about the country. And so maybe you're more, you know of more opportunities of work in different places. So not only do I measure where you're living, I also ask about um, your knowledge of other parts of the country. And I, the, I put a very simple quiz in the survey, which is asking them for the state governor and the state capital of, country, of states in different parts of the country. So that's my test of knowledge of other parts of Nigeria. And in addition, I also have a hypothetical question that asks them, if you were to get a job offer in a different states, and I vary the states for different parts of the country, and there was a 100% increase in salary, how likely would you be to go? Then I ask the same thing for a 50% increase in salary and for a 10% increase in salary. And I'm really trying to trace out people's willingness to migrate. So that's all on the first bucket, which is internal migration. The second set of outcomes is on national pride. So I ask people, how proud do you feel to be Nigerian? And the idea is that a key part of integration is that people learn to develop a sense of um, identity that goes beyond their own ethnicity or that goes to the broader country that they're part of. And I asked them about their national pride and also about their ethnic pride. How proud do you feel to be Yoruba? And then I say, there's another question there where I ask, if you had to choose one between being Nigerian and being Yoruba, which one would you, would you prefer? So that's the second bucket on national pride and identity. And then the third set of outcomes are around attitudes and relationships with other groups. Another part of integration is being able to have positive relationships and interactions with people who are from groups that are different from yours. And so for that, I ask a series of questions about how much do you trust people 
Hausa people, Igbo people, Yoruba people, how close do you feel to them? And if a close family member was to marry someone from that group, would you support their decision? In addition to these attitudes, um, I also ask about your actual relationships. So have you dated someone who is from you know, each of these groups? The, are you married? So about, um, I think, a little more than half of them were married at the time of the survey. This was seven years after their their NYSC. So this is a future, this is seven years into the future that I'm asking them these questions on a phone survey. And I ask, if you're married, which ethnic group is your spouse from? So those are the key ways in which I'm trying to measure integration, both in terms of people's mobility across the country, their internal sense of pride and identity identification, as well as the attitudes they have towards other groups and how they relate to them. And what do you find? What are the results <laughs> okay. of your, your paper? Okay. Um, so the first very striking result is on the mobility. I find that people are um, five times more likely to be living in other parts of the country. So among those who are among the Yorubas, about um, 3% of them are living within their own ethnic group. But that increases to about 15% of people who have who were sent to serve in a different part of the country. And so going to those two mechanisms that I described, I do find that they are more knowledgeable about other parts of the country. So that seems to be at play. But in addition, even when you hold the conditions constant, um, by saying you know a specific job with a certain amount of money in a certain place, I also find that they are also more willing to move. So it seems that these two things are at play. And one thing that's interesting is that it's not just that people remain like in the region where they served, um, or maybe like in another state that has the same language. Maybe they picked up a language during their service. Instead, we see them be more likely to live all over the country. So it really points to a more intrinsic change in their willingness to move and their willingness to think of themselves as being able to make their home in any part of the country. So that was the first. On the question around the identity, this was very interesting. I find that their sense of national pride increases. So it's about a 0.3 standard deviation increase in in the scale of how proud you feel to be Nigerian. At the same time, I find that their ethnic pride also increases. So people also report being more proud to be Yoruba when they've been exposed to other parts of the country. Now, to the third question about the, which one they prefer, I don't find any significant um, statistical difference on those. And so this puzzled me initially. And then I had a number of focus groups with the participants, and I, I would just my mind went back to those conversations and I saw that they kept talking on two, um, about two effects. So one is that, oh, by moving around the country and seeing the beauty of the country, the diversity of it, I realized that I'm part of this entity that's really bigger than just my own group. And so one can understand the greater um, national pride. At the same time, they, you know, they describe a lot of the surprises that they felt in their host community that oh i never knew that people ate dogs for instance or that people did you know all this um behaviors that they they were not familiar with and 
and many times they would think about you know my people would never do that and i don't know why other people would do things like that or another um mechanism in which their own identity became a lot more salient was that they were the obvious foreigner maybe they had been sent to a remote village in a very different part and so people you know sometimes they even just call them by their ethnic group or like the yoruba man who's the teacher in the school and so it's like you're constantly being reminded of your difference and what makes you different and so to me i think that that's most likely what's explaining this other result where we're seeing an increase in in um, their ethnic pride as well. And what this findings um, signify, which I think has not been very much appreciated in the literature, is that we don't always have to think about national identity and ethnic identity as um, being in conflict. Because in this case, we're actually seeing both of them um, increasing together in this in this situation. So that I thought was a very interesting finding. In the third bucket of the attitudes and the relationships with other groups, I find that um, they don't reflect any increases in how much they like, you know, how close they feel to the other groups, how much they trust them or the marriage, so all those questions, there are no statistically significant results that I'm able to detect. Um, and I think that this is probably due to, like I was mentioning before, the fact that in my control group, these individuals are also exposed to a very diverse set of people. And so many times in this literature, we talk about the inter-group contact hypothesis, which is if I meet somebody from a different group, say I am a Yoruba person and all my life I never interacted much with Igbos and then I meet one person from that group that could um, improve my attitude towards that group. What we have here is that the control group has that. They are exposed to people from other groups. What's different is what then comes in addition if you live fully among them and I'm not seeing much on this intensive margin um, of updating attitudes towards other groups. Instead, what I'm seeing is that they do have indeed more relationships with them. So they are more likely to have dated people from other groups. Um, marriage, like I said, it's very, not all of them, not many of them are married, but even in on marriage, we do see some evidence pointing in that direction. So the way that I summarize this evidence or that I interpret is that living within another group, it might not increase your sense of closeness, but even conditional on having a certain level of trust or affinity to them, you have more opportunities to actually date them to, to have these close relationships. And so I think that that's what I'm picking up in this third set. So it's, so yeah, these are the three different elements and these are the different things that I find. And I guess, uh, given that your study group are university grad students, how representative is of the general population? And I'm really asking is, is it possible that their, that their status may influence their worldview and hence may constrain the way that you extrapolate these results? No, I think that that's very, um, that's very true in that they, they have had higher education, so the way that they think might be quite different. And in fact, this was an explicit choice that the government made. Um, the idea is that these are people who are going to be leaders for the most part. So community leaders, society 
um, leaders, religious leaders, political leaders. And if we can get to this group of individuals and change their mindsets in increasing their openness and their um, sense of national um, identity and their orientation towards national integration, then they will have the chance to influence other members of the society. And I think that um, it is, so I, I, I think that it is indeed possible that the effects on them is different because of their level of education, but I think that it's furthers the overall goal of seeing how that could trickle down to the people that they influence. Ethnicity is one of many variables that may affect or may be affected by exposure. Perhaps the other most evident one is religion. So how does this impact your results? Do you find, for example, that maybe Christian populations may be more tolerant after being exposed to a Muslim setting? Now, this is a very interesting feature of Nigeria is that, yes, there are these ethnic differences, but then religion is also the other big thing in Nigeria with the population splits um, between Christians and Muslims. And I think that it is indeed possible that this could happen. In my setting, I don't find direct evidence for that. For instance, I, I run my whole results thinking of not just being sent to a different ethnic group. I can also change the variable and say, okay, you're sent to a different religion and I can see what impact that has on you. I don't find much on that. Um, in fact, what I think might be going on is that Yorubas are somewhat evenly split between Christian and Muslim. So anyone that's growing up in a Yoruba area, you're surrounded by both Christian and Muslim. There are churches on the street and there are mosques on the other side of the street. And many families, indeed, they have Christian members and Muslim members. And so for people who are in most of the Yoruba states, this is not, if they move to a Christian, predominantly Christian states, like in an Igbo state, it's not strange to them. It's not really like going somewhere foreign because they've had a lot of exposure to that. If they move to a house, a state that's predominantly Muslim, they are also a level of familiarity that they've had to that. And so I think that that might explain it. So it would be interesting, you know, if the study had been done with Igbos who are then sent to Hausa states where you're different on both the religion and the ethnicity, where you haven't experienced both dimensions, then one might be interested to see what's going on. But at least among the people that I'm studying, I can look at a Christian Yoruba that's sent to um, um, predominantly Muslim area or predominantly Christian area, and I don't, I don't see much of a difference. You were previously saying that there were some debates in Nigeria about the usefulness of the youth program. If, let's say, you would tomorrow become kind of a, the, the, the one to decide about the, the future of the program, would you continue it? Would you terminate it? Or maybe you would change it? What would you do about it? I think that it is, it's hard to think of, you know, it's, it's easy to just think about the status quo and be used to the program. You know, my parents did the program, I did the program. It's almost like a rite of passage um, in, in the country. So there is a part where you just kind of feel an attachment to it. And I'm doing further projects now where I'm working a lot with these core members. And I think there really is a big role that they can play. I think that not just on themselves, 
for this role of national unity, but also the impact that they're having on the communities where they serve. That's another research project that I'm working on, trying to understand how having, te- having them as teachers and role models to young people, how this might affect the people that they're serving. And so for those reasons, I think I would keep it. I think that I might make it voluntary um, because I think that there are certain people that probably benefit more from it than others. There are certain people who really don't want to be there. They're annoyed that they have to do it. You know, the attitude is not great. And so maybe those people, we don't, we don't really want them anyways. But I think that there are many other people who really value the program, who are happy to go and serve. For people, especially even in lower income, um, at lower income levels, having that source of stable employment for one year coming out of university is a way for them to save before they have to go and um, go to a very competitive job market or start a business. And so I think that there's certainly many people where it's it's a net positive. And so I think I would keep it, but maybe make it voluntary. Uh, to end, I would like to ask kind of a personal question. As a Nigerian who studied in the U.S. and now works at the World Bank, how has that experience impacted your openness to other cultures? Do you see yourself, for example, more as a citizen of the world than in the past? That's a really interesting question. I think, I think yes. In fact, actually, the results that I shared on the national pride increasing and the ethnic pride increasing, that resonates with me very much personally. Because I think that because I've been living outside Nigeria since I was about you know, 18, coming to college in the U.S. and now working in a very international organization, I think that I do think of myself more as a global citizen. I have lived in different states, I've worked in different parts of the world, and and it's I see so many commonalities that I have with people who are coming from very different backgrounds. So I do think of myself as a global citizen, but I also think that all of this exposure has also made me feel more Nigerian. I... I cherish that um, heritage and what's unique about my culture and my identity even more so. Um, One funny example is that out of all my friends, especially even the ones that live in Nigeria, most people don't teach their children Yoruba, which is the language that I spoke growing up. Um, You know, we were raised bilingual. But for me... I think because of being in a very global environment, I am actually one of the few people in my cohorts that I know that are very active about trying to teach my children to speak the language and just trying to pass on that Yorubanness to them. And so I think that that's one uh, manifestation of this dual effect where one can at the same time feel connected to something larger and at the same time your own identity can be reinforced. So that's my story. Thank you very much, uh, Oyobola. It was very nice talking to you about this exciting project. And thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. The story of nations is a story of conflicts and bargaining processes. Some societies have achieved a stable equilibrium where their identity is clearly defined, both to the outside world, but most importantly, to their inside Other societies, unfortunately, have not. Understanding how practically viable it is for an ethnically diverse country to get unified remains one significant challenge for scholars and policymakers alike. 
This has been Pens Exchange, Markets and Cooperation, a podcast from the Penn Initiative for the Study of Markets at the University of Pennsylvania's Economics Department. Our goal is to bring a thoughtful, fact-based and entertaining discussion on the historical experience of markets and their philosophical foundations. I am Fernando Arteaga and I will be glad to hear from you. You can follow us on Instagram and on Twitter as at pen underscore exchange. Stay tuned.